available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. I'm Sheila Allen, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 19th of July, 2023. And coming up in this week's programme, we have Margaret talking about St. Bartholomew's Church in Binley. We've got a piece about a rural retreat in Derbyshire that feeds the soul and the stomach. Something about Yorkshire puddings from Nigel. And Alistair McGowan and Giles Brandreth feature in the programme. And Dave has been exploring the Charterhouse on the London Road, plus, of course, all of your usual features such as sport and postbag. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. A bid to save Spencer Park Pavilion and give it a new lease of life for the community has received a cash boost, totalling more than £184,000. The Friends of Spencer Park has been successful in bidding for a share of the government's community ownership fund. The Edwardian Pavilion in the Earlston Park is decaying, with the Friends wanting to preserve its appearance while revamping the interior to provide a heritage meeting space, a modern cafe and new toilets. Plans would see the pavilion house exhibitions showcasing local heritage articles, photographs and work done by Coventry artists. The Friends Group developed the pavilion plans over the past three years and published them in February. A public meeting in March enabled people to see the plans in more detail and ask questions. After ensuring the pavilion's owners, Coventry City Council, had no plans for its future, the Friends got the authority to agree to its project to preserve the building and develop it into a centrepiece and community asset. The Friends' petition, which gained over 2,500 signatures, was used to prove public support for the plans as well as part of the funding application. The team behind Coventry Food Bank have issued a fresh appeal for support ahead of a predicted spike in demand over the school holidays, which start from July the 24th. The city's 14 food banks are bracing themselves for increased demand at the same time as a forecast of 25% drop in donations, as the summer break leaves more parents than ever struggling to put food on their tables. Since being established in 2011, Coventry Food Bank has supported families and individuals across the city to access emergency food parcels, giving out over 100,000 three-day emergency food parcels to over 250,000 people. The impending summer struggle comes in the wake of concern filings by the Thrustled Trust, the State of Hunger Report. This is the largest ever study into hunger and food bank use in the UK, which suggests that one in five people in the country has gone without food over the past year on a regular basis. The report also states that food banks in the Trussell Trust's network distributed 61,000 emergency food parcels in 2010-11, rising to 2.5 million in 2020-21. And that, compared to this time five years ago, the need for food banks has increased by 128%. 
Gavin Kibble, founder of the Coventry Food Bank, said, This year we have seen donations plummet, yet demand for our service has risen exponentially. Put quite simply, people are no longer in a position to support us in the way they did due to the current cost of living crisis. This is a very worrying time for everyone. Demand this year has outstripped supply, so that on an average week we were giving out a tonne of food more than was coming in. Since the start of the year, we have used our cash reserves to purchase over 20 tonnes of food to supplement our food offer. He added, Through 2023, we have continued to experience unprecedented demand for food bank support, significantly outstripping donations of food. Many parents will turn to the food bank during July and August, faced with the cost of providing additional food to their families. If we could all buy one extra item when we do a supermarket shop and just drop it in the food bank supermarket collection box, we could easily support the needs of many families living in crisis at this time. One of Coventry's top cops says it's only a matter of time before the two mass culprits behind a city centre crime wave are brought to justice. West Midlands Police has stepped up patrols in the city following a space of thefts involving balaclava-clad thieves on off-road electric motorbikes. In one of the most recent incidents, a woman was left shaken after her phone was snatched by two young men on an off-road bike near Primark in Broadgate. The theft happened at about 1pm on Tuesday, July the 4th. Clearly, there's two individuals causing this pain for us at the moment, Chief Inspector Darrell Lyon told Coventry Live. It's not a wide-scale issue, but it's quite a targeted issue involving a specific couple of individuals. We're going to intensify our activities to detect offences carried out by the individuals responsible. Chief Inspector Lyon added, We've made some arrests, but we don't believe we've arrested the two main perpetrators. They wear face coverings, which makes it a little more difficult and means you have to be in the right place at the right time. We're deploying a number of different tactics, some of which I can't disclose, but we're really responding to those issues. We've got a number of offences which we know are linked to these two individuals, We've made sure we're in a really good position evidentially when we arrest them because it's only a matter of time before we do and we'll then make sure we can do everything we can to detect those offences and keep the public safe. Coventry City Council overspent by millions of pounds on its services last year as it dealt with a lengthy strike by bin lorry drivers. Action to reduce the impact of the industrial dispute cost the council £7.1 million more than its budget for the area in 2023. This included putting on rubbish drop-off sites for residents and hiring waste management firm Tom White Waste to pick up people's bins. Lost commercial waste contracts because of the seven-month strike also cost the council money and will have a more lasting financial impact. The total overspend for street scene and regulatory services, which covers bin collections, was a whopping £9.4 million, most of which was related to the strike. This is almost half the Council's overspend on its services last year, which came to just over £20 million. 
after factoring in a £13.4 million underspend in its contingency and central budgets, the council was left with a gap of £6.7 million and had to dip into reserves of COVID-19 funding to balance the books. Along with other uses throughout the year, the council now has almost £18 million less in reserves than it did in 21-22, going from £140 million to £122 million. The council has also written off £1.6 million it is owed by the City of Culture Trust, including a £1 million loan made last year. The authority has instead used £1 million that was put aside for the City of Culture Legacy and £600 of City Readiness money for the programme to cover the debt it is writing off. In theory, the council could still recover some money from the trust administration process, but this is unlikely. Speaking at a council meeting on Tuesday, July the 11th, Councillor Richard Brown, Cabinet Member for Finance, said the full overspend has been reduced from an estimated £8.5 million earlier in the year. He referred to one-off pressures including the bin driver strike and also rising costs in children's and adult services. Councillor Brown said the council had been prudent in the past, so it had resources to fill the gap. Historic Coventry has a brand new landmark to celebrate. A 60-foot remodelled replica of the Coventry Cross has been unveiled in Broadgate, close to its original location after months of behind-closed-doors restoration work. The cross is based on a 1976 copy of the 16th-century monument and links the history of King Henry VI to Coventry when it was served as an important market town in the medieval era. The cross has been rebuilt with several new features including stained glass windows which tell the story of the medieval history in Coventry. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, the City Council's Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change Chief, was at the unveiling and said, It's fantastic that we can celebrate the rich history of our great city by rebuilding this important landmark and getting it close to its original location. We are an ambitious city and I was pleased that we could use the skills of local people at a local company to combine the best of the old and the best of the new into the Coventry Cross. The modern day version unveiled on Thursday of last week features 33 statues of animals, angels, saints and kings and has the original crown from the 1976 cross placed on the top. It also includes a new 3D printed sculpture of King Henry VI manufactured locally by HPL. According to the Coventry Society, early records suggest a cross was first seen in the city in the 1300s. It was probably a simple cross carved out of local red sandstone, the Society's website says. In 1423, the court leet records show that there was an order for a new cross, which lasted for a hundred years. Unfortunately, part of the upper section had to be taken down for safety reasons. In 1441, work started on building a new cross from money left by Sir William Hollies in his will. Sir William had been born in the Stoke area of Coventry. He made his money in London and had been Mayor of London. The new cross was brightly painted and picked out with gilding. It stood for 200 years. 
but by 1771 it was taken down after part had been removed to avoid its complete collapse. Parts of the cross were saved and one sculpture of King Henry VI was put by the stairs to St Mary's Hall and is now on display in the Herbert Museum. There are said to be pieces of the original cross in a garden on Tamworth Road. It's claimed the idea of a replica was first suggested in the 1930s, but it was not until 1971 that discussions and plans were shown to the Coventry Civic Amenities Society, now the Coventry Society, and church authorities. Funded by the Coventry Boy Foundation, the replica stood next to Holy Trinity Church, 100 metres away from the original site of the Old Cross. The first steps to re-naturalise the River Sherbourne as part of a major £3 million project are set to take place later this month. We at Mitigation Works will be carried out at Lakeview Park from the 31st of July as part of the Sherbourne Valley project. These works will aim to have a positive short and long-term effect on the nine-mile-long river. The bridge above the weir will be closed while the work is being carried out. A weir is a small barrier built across a stream or river to raise the water level slightly on the upstream side. The Sherbourne Valley project will restore and revitalise the river which runs through the heart of Coventry, enabling people to enjoy and celebrate all aspects of the river's heritage. The project will aim to reawaken the river, create new wetlands and change people's relationships with it. It has six key objectives, include better connecting conventions to the river and its surrounding green spaces, ensuring the area has habitats for wildlife and making it more accessible along its length. The build heritage will also be preserved and celebrated and funding will help empower the local community to take ownership of the river. Action around re-naturalising the river was approved by Community Consultation Service carried out by the project last April. Campaigners determined to return motorsport to Coventry Stadium have launched a desperate appeal in a bid to win their fight. Racing at Coventry Stadium, also referred to as Brandon Stadium, came to an end in 2016 when the Rugby Road venue and its land was purchased by Brandon Estates Limited. Brandon Estates has since submitted a number of planning applications for housing at the abandoned site, the most recent being a proposal for 134 homes, a 3G football pitch and a pavilion. Each of the applications was turned down by Rugby Borough Council. The company's appeal and the council's reasons for rejection will be discussed in detail by the Planning Inspectorate with an inquiry set to take place at Rugby Town Hall on September the 19th. Nine committee members attached to the Save Coventry Speedway campaign group have fought out thousands of pounds to fight Brandon Estates housing plans. The group, which has put forward its own proposal for the site, once home to the Coventry Bees Speedway team, but now regularly targeted by arsonists, has been granted special Rule 6 permission allowing it to have an input at the inquiry. But to avoid further personal costs for a barrister to represent them, the group has now launched a GoFundMe page. As both Brandon Estates and the Rugby Borough Council will have barristers at the inquiry, we need one as well, 
So need your help in raising £20,000 to cover the cost, says the page, which has been launched by Wayne Roberts. We will be at a disadvantage without one. We are appealing to everyone up and down the country to help. With your help, we can win. We can save Brandon Stadium. Former stock car driver Warren Hunter, MD, of leading vegetable supplier company Hunter Pack Limited, made an offer to buy the stadium and its land from Brandon Estates back in May 2020. The offer wasn't refused, merely ignored, Coventry Live understands. Mr Hunter has pledged his support for a counter-proposal from Save Coventry Speedway that would pave the way for a return to the stadium of Speedway and other motorsports. The plan drafted by the group was made public in April last year, seven months before a notice of motion was put forward by Councillor Tony Gillias, an avid Speedway fan, at a full Rugby Borough Council meeting. Coventry welcomed MP Dame Andrea Leedsom and representatives from the Department of Education and Department of Health and Social Care to show the pioneering work of the city's family hubs. The eight family hubs are based around the city to offer local support to residents with a focus on helping children, young people and their families. The hubs help to join up the planning and delivery of family services. They build connections between families, practitioners, services and providers and put relationships at the heart of family support. They offer universal support to families with children of all ages up to 19 with services including parenting, infant feeding and perinatal mental health and well-being services. A range of services are co-located in the family hubs to provide a one-stop shop for parents, such as midwifery, health visiting, debt and welfare advice and housing-related support. Coventry has helped to pioneer the use of family hubs over the past five years and has now been selected to take part in the National Family Hub and Start for Life programme. The Council is receiving over £4 million over the next three years so it can expand the work and help even more people in collaboration with a wide range of partners and stakeholders. Councillor Seaman said, We were delighted to welcome Dame Andrea and the government teams to show them the amazing work that is being carried out in the city to give children and families the support they need in those early years. Our family hubs have been a great success and have helped so many people since they were introduced. They put care right in the heart of our communities and bring services together so families can be supported in the best way possible. City music legend and the specials guitarist Limville Golding became an honorary Doctorate of Arts on Monday for his contribution to music and the fight against discrimination. The 71-year-old was honoured by Coventry University at a graduation ceremony at the city's cathedral. A founder member of the specials, Linville helped to pioneer the two-tone movement in the late 1970s and early 1980s with hits like A Message to You, Rudy and Ghost Town. He and the rest of the band also took a stand against racism and all forms of discrimination. He said, This means so much to me and I'm accepting this on behalf of the next generation and I want to pass it down to them. I have two grandsons, and for me to inspire them means a lot. I've got to give so much to my father. He is looking down at me going, that's my boy. Thank you to everyone for the opportunity, 
the journey and the doors that were open to me in Coventry. Bless everyone, and as Terry Hall would say at the end of a concert, love, love and love. Love to everyone in Coventry. This was the first time Linville was back in the country since the funeral of his much-loved friend and special singer Terry Hall, who died in December. The ceremony at Coventry Cathedral carried extra poignancy, as it was the same location where Terry played his final gig in Coventry. Terry was such a humble guy. I won the biggest jackpot ever to work with him and the others over the years. The last gig Terry did, I got up to sing with him. He was so funny and an amazing man. The best. Outlook News. Thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news there. Um, now I've got a few things to tell you today. Um, we'll start with lighting up and down times. It's still quite light, although with this dull weather it's probably not quite so light. So sunrise is 5.08am and sunset is 918 um, But when it get, those clouds come over, it gets dark anyway, doesn't it? Strange weather we're having this year, but I'd rather this than the heat they've got everywhere else in the world, mm. so I'm not going to complain about mm. it. Now then, um, a gentleman called Robert Franklin phoned with a tip of the day. It's about this closure of the uh, ticket offices at railway stations, which I think we all agree is probably a very stupid thing to do. Um, but he says that transport focus are asking visually impaired people or people generally to call and tell them which stations you want saving and manning. So if you'd like to do that, you can call him or call them on 0300 123 2350 and use option 1 to give them your opinion. And I think you've got to do that before the 26th of July. Um, and I think we've mentioned before bands in the park, which is really nice if it happens to be a sunny Sunday afternoon. So they're usually on a Sunday from 2pm until 3.30. The next ones coming up are Sunday the 23rd of July in Cowden Peace Orchard, and that's the Coventry Festival Band. I have to be honest to say I don't know where Cowden Peace Orchard is. No, I don't. No, my husband went to it last year to oh. the bands and he thinks he can remember how to get there for this year. And would you know where it is? Um, no. <laughs> You'd have to find out if you want to go. <laughs> um, and then Sunday the 13th of August is the War Memorial Park, which we know where that is, and that is the AD Concert Band. So hopefully the sun will shine on and that will be nice. Um, a bit more what's on... Um, the end of July seems to be quite a busy period. The Belgrade has got Zog from the 26th to the 30th. A Warwick Arts Festival is taking place all over Warwick from the 27th to the 30th. And the Fargo Village in Coventry has a Beard and Beer Festival on the 29th. I assume you can go if you haven't got a beard, but I don't really know quite what that's all about. Um, and then finally, from the 29th to the 30th, there is Jousting at Kenilworth Castle. And I know you have to pay that's ticketed to go in. So that's quite a lot going on at the end of the month. Again, fingers crossed for nice weather. And then finally, the IBSA World Games are happening between the 18th and 27th of August. Um, the venues are generally Birmingham-based, so the University of Birmingham, um, the Billsley Indoor Tennis Centre, the Hollywood Bowl Plaza, King Edward School and the University of Wolverhampton. The only one that's local is the CBS Arena in Coventry, which has got the goal ball, which again, I have to admit, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's obviously something to do with getting the ball in a goal. Um, I 
haven't got any more details, but I'm sure if you go online, you can find out more about exactly what time these things are taking place and how much the tickets are and how to get there and whatever. So that is about it. And now we're going to find out what's happening in the Resource Centre from Joe. Thank you. I've just looked up Camden Peace Orchard. Oh, well done. Just for everybody's benefit. So it's on Long Lane, just off Tamworth Road, ah. near Cardinal Newman School. Oh, okay. So that's the general area yeah, to aim good, for. Good about this sort of city centre, isn't it? Behind, behind the old hall, whatever that is. Oh, right, okay. That that's the um, old hotel yeah, that's right. derelict in Camden. Yes, Park, on really, the Tamworth it? Yeah. Road. So oh, right. there you are. That's, now we that's know. what that is. So there you are. Yes, so hello. Welcome. Uh, hello, everybody. It's Joe this week speaking for Hugh. Hugh is in the office, actually, but he's just been out at a long meeting. So he is now getting on with lots of other things. So it's me. So I hope everybody's well. I have a few things to tell you about from the centre. Um, So I'm going to start by saying um, probably some of you who come in more regularly are very aware we're struggling slightly with our minibus transport services. We are lacking volunteers um, and are running quite a lot of activities at the moment. So that doesn't combine well sometimes. We're trying to make sure everybody gets in when they need to, gets home when they need to, and we are aware there have been a few hiccups recently. So our apologies to those of you that might have been on the bus longer than we would like, or you've had to wait longer than you would like. Um, We are aware there are some problems, and we are doing our very best to try and work out the solutions. Um, So one solution we're going to try and do, uh, Hugh is busy working on a marketing campaign for volunteers. Uh, So he's going to put something jazzy out there uh, with some new pictures and a bit of a new strap line asking people to think how many hours do you have in the week and what would be the best two hours of your week could be this or something on that theme good idea and we always need more help don't we exactly and uh, you know we only need people to come for two hours a week if that's all they can manage Mm -hmm. we're absolutely delighted so if you do know anyone or you could encourage anyone uh, to put the contact details out there for us then please do One thing that would help the marketing campaign is to have some quotes from people that do come to the centre and do use the minibus perhaps, Mm. but but generally come to the centre and have support from volunteers. Mm. If you have a short sentence that you could describe how having volunteers here really helps what they do that is so valuable, we'd love to have some quotes um, because I think that really speaks volumes on a poster. Um, It's all about giving Mm. time but Mm. it's all about I think for volunteers it's a lot about getting something meaningful out of Mm. what they're doing so Mm. Mm. I think you do it because of what we get out of it don't we you 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 don't just do it to help other people you do it because you gain something by by helping people yes it has Mm. to mean Um, something of value to you as well doesn't it Mm. Um, well it would do because they see how much it means to the users to come here and that's the bit we're trying to encapsulate Mm. so if Mm. you've got any lovely little quotes you'd like to tell us how the volunteers that you have, all the drivers particularly, mm. how it helps you that there is a transport service and how mm. they help you, then we'd love to have it. Mm. So email or tell reception and we will note a few down. Um, the other thing it's led us to think about is, and um, obviously we are absolutely committed to providing transport for anyone who needs it, but we are aware there are some of you out there who are a bit more mobile And whilst the minibus might be really convenient and we would love to have you still booking, if you are one of those people who really can travel a bit more independently 
Uh, we just wanted to remind people that there is the West Midlands on-demand bus service. So if we are struggling and you are able to help us out on and off by getting in and some other way, that would be very, very helpful for the time being. But again, don't feel any pressure about that. We are absolutely committed to providing transport for those that need it. Um, so if you haven't already registered with the on-demand bus services, you can do that either with somebody's help using an app uh, or get the devices session here to set you up on their app or there's a phone number that you can ring and get registered. I will give you the number. You might all know it, but it's 0345 034 8670 and um, if you try using it and you get stuck then please tell us what problems you're having because we do feel it's an important service yeah. in the city um, it's very cheap as well there is that benefit it's cheaper than our services um, we know it's not always hugely reliable but um, I think if you're over 67 or you are registered with a disability uh, or you have a registered vision sight loss uh, Single journey is £1.50. It's very good. Yes. Mm. So it's just another option. And whilst we're a bit stretched, if people are able to think about that, that would help us out. Um, now, the other thing to remind you about, of course, um, well, this weekend coming is our summer garden party. Uh, we've had to move to plan B, which is the wet weather plan. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, we're hoping we'll have a good time anyway. And hoping it won't rain the whole time. Oh, sure it won't. Uh, so we'll be in Boston Lodge and in Mary Beale and in the garden area with, with marquees. Um, but one thing that we will now be doing is selling the summer raffle tickets. And we've had a lot printed. We've had 2,500 tickets printed. <laughs> if we could sell every one of those, we'd be making £2,500, which would be a fantastic achievement. Now, I know that's a big ask, but we have got some very good prizes this year. So the first prize is £250 in cash. Uh, Hugh has written on the ticket the second prize is a meat platter, but that's, it's a big selection of meats, uh, so it's pretty impressive. But we also have um, one of the tickets is a, um, uh, a family ticket for Coventry Blaze ice hockey for this Ooh. home season, one, one opportunity to go once this home season, four people. And we have two tickets for the pantomime at the Belgrade coming in mm. Christmas. Oh no, you, oh, no, you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we also have a number of other really nice prizes. So uh, if we can try our best this year to sell as many as we can, that would be fantastic. You've got till September, huh? Yeah, we're going to do the draw in September. So it gives us plenty of time. But it's, it's just about picking up a few books, giving them to family, giving to the school that you might go to with the kids or grandkids trying to flog a few where you can really if, you, if you're able to and um, see if we can make it a bumper a bumper uh, raffle this year um, we'll have those available in reception and you can always ask staff for them um, now on a different note um, we have just found uh, we've just been told about a new website um, which is called vihub.org for those of you that are able to access the internet, it's actually looking like a very promising website. It's sometimes very confusing to find reliable, uh, up-to-date information about visual impairment. You have to go to, across lots of different organisations to get it. The RNIB have theirs, other organisations do bits of this, bits of that. This place is all eight of the biggest UK 
visual impairment charities or organisations have combined has set up this new hub and they are going to uh, make available on their very well researched and very well evidenced uh, and checked um, up-to-date information across all areas of interest related to visual impairment. So it's available to family members, people with visual impairment themselves, carers, professionals, people like us in charities. And I think it's going to be a really, really helpful resource. So vihub.org. And um, it's, it's a good place to go if you want information um, and signposting, but also if you are trying to explain to somebody else about a condition uh, or about how many or people have this, available. what is available, your doctor may be describing to your doctor, uh, you know, sometimes they don't know very much, do they? Mm. Um, so we're, we're looking into that now, but it, it, I think it would be a very useful site, so I just wanted to mention it. Um, and the other thing, I think there's two, uh, one more thing I just wanted to, uh, two more things, sorry. Hugh has passed me this from the NHS, which is uh, for men, 65 plus age group. Um, and it's a... Uh, uh, what do they call it, a screening program for men of 65 or over, which is checking uh, the aortic um, ah. uh, health of the aorta, mm. the main blood vessels. And so there is a, a screening program. So men who are over 65 or 65 and over will be receiving, I think, an invitation to request a scan. So look out for that. And I it's would, a once-in-a-lifetime one, I believe. Is it? Mm. I wouldn't be surprised. Probably very non-invasive. It's it's mm. like it's it's like a, a scan like a lady would have when she's pregnant. Yes, yes um, it's on the so stomach. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Mm. And uh, so it's there's nothing horrible about it. Nothing no. invasive. No. Uh, and no doubt it, it's obviously being offered because it's proving its worth. So um, be a good chance to take that up if you get some information about that. All you chaps out there. And then the last thing on a slightly different note again. I'm doing a bit of a medley today. <laughs> um, I just wanted to remind people about postage stamps, because I'd forgotten that postage stamps are about to expire, ones that don't have the barcodes on them. You may be all more organised than I am, but I didn't realise you could actually send them back in for free. Uh, easier uh, said than done. Um, well, there's a form <laughs> you fill out. Have you done it? No, but I've heard a lot about it. Have you? Mm. Well, I've just done the form for myself because I have two books of old postage oh. stamps and oh. it's, you know, £18 worth. Exactly. So I thought, well, mm. oh, yeah. not, not to be sneezed at. So no. it's quite a simple form. Obviously, some people might need help with the form. You can either print it off and take it into a post office with the stamps. The stamps have to be in their books. or Although if you've got loose stamps, they will take those as well. Uh, or you can send the form in, submit it online. Mm. So it's easy to do. Um, so I have just done it and sent them my stamps and I'm hoping what they'll do then is send me the equivalent back with the barcoded versions. £18 worth, 18 pounds worth of first and second class stamps. Yes. So just wanted to flag up that fact because it runs out at the end of July, 31st of July. Okay. So that's all from me, I think. Uh, nice to speak to you all and hope to see you all soon. Okay, thank you very much, Joe, for that. And now here's Sarah with sport, and I'm sure, amongst other things, she's going to be talking about that great Wimbledon men's final. Outlook Sport. Well, yes, hello there, lovely listeners. 
Now today I am going to talk a load of balls. I'll start off with the tennis balls. Those that were hit, smashed, drop shotted and everything else you can think about at Wimbledon. Now as I predicted or hoped, Angevin was in the final. But she lost to a relatively unknown Czech lady, Marketa von Drusa. Have you ever heard of her? I hadn't. But the match was very one-sided. Marquesa won in two straight sets in, ooh, somewhere around an hour. Now, she was also unseeded, and she became the first unseeded player ever to win the Wimbledon women's title. So why was she unseeded? Well, she's only ranked 42 in the world following a series of surgeries last year. And she was so unknown that she didn't even have a clothes sponsor. So she played in white and there was obviously a logo on her left breast area, but she got it all covered and stitched out. I bet those sponsors can't wait to snap her up now. But the one thing she is, is a tattoo addict. And the first thing she's going to do when she gets back to the Czech Republic, well, probably not the very first, but she's going to get a tattoo of the Wimbledon crest. Now, in the men's, my prediction to win Novak Djokovic was in the final, but age 36, he took on the 20-year-old Carlos Alcaraz and the youngster won in a five-hour match which went to five sets. Whew. And the audience at Wimbledon was so packed they even had to close admission to Henman Hill. That is unknown. But... Watching Carlos, who is from Spain, was none less than the King of Spain. Oh, and also our Prince and Princess of Wales, George and Charlotte, although Louis presumably was at home. But it was actually George who passed the coin to the lad that tossed the coin at the beginning. So that was rather nice. Now, Carlos took the second third and fifth sets but my gosh was it a marathon but it's a blooming good job it wasn't played in the temperatures they've been having in Europe anyway both of my predictions of last week to win came second so I think my end of Wimbledon report says could do a bit better now, congratulations to the two and a half British winners of their events in this prestigious international tennis tournament. They included Henry Searle, positively a local lad, well, he's 17, young man, who won the boys' championship. Now, this, he was the first British boy to win for 61 years. And the previous winner was the son, none less, than of Sir Stanley Matthews. 
he beat his Russian opponent, Buhis. 6-4-6-4, and indeed, Henry has not dropped a set in the whole tournament. Oh, he was also unseeded. Now, this is where the half comes in. Congratulations to Neil Skupski from Liverpool, who, with his Dutch partner, Wesley Koolhaas, took the men's doubles. Cue the BBC commentator to say, Well, I don't know whether to party tonight with Neil and his team, but I think I'll go with Cole and his gang. <sighs> and congratulations to the perennial Gordon Reeve and Alfie Hewitt, who took their fifth Wimbledon title. Sadly for Alfie, although he made the singles, and that remains the one gap in his trophy cabinet, he lost to an up-and-coming 17-year-old Japanese player. But the Japanese player had been beaten with his Japanese partner the previous day by Gordon and Alfie in the doubles. So I suppose he'd be quite happy. So now we'll move on to cricket balls. I told you there were a lot of balls today. Well, in the women's ashes, it looked hopeful at first because England beat Australia to level the series 2-2 in the first of the three one-day internationals. But sadly, in the second, England lost. So it's no longer possible for them to get the ashes because Australia hold it. They can, I believe, draw, but that would still mean that Australia retain them. Now, the men had have had a week off and resume on, I believe, Wednesday. So, now we move on to golf balls. Now, it's been the Scottish Open in the week gone, which is seen as the final warm-up for the Open. And the winner was none less than one Rory McIlroy. I've heard of him. Yeah, we well, should have, Lewis. He's won four majors. Now, the Open Golf itself which is from Royal Liverpool this year, which is confusingly also called Hoylake. I don't know. Runs from this coming Thursday, so that's the 20th, finishing on the 23rd, the Sunday. Now, it's being covered on Sky, but usually Radio 5 Live or 5 Sport Extra cover it and the BBC do have a highlights program but the last time it was held at, at Hoy Lake which was 2014 now let me just look at my notes where have I got this somewhere oh yes the winner was none less than Rory McElroy so come on Rory Break your run without majors and just beat them. Now, the final spot today, well, it's not my hand finally, 
but I'm going to talk about the World Athletics because I got it wrong. They are not in the middle of July, but the middle of August. But given that they're from Budapest and the temperatures they've been having in that part of the of the world, well, hopefully it will have cooled down a little bit by middle of August. Oh, and the Birmingham Commonwealth Games, which were held in July 2022, England have just been awarded their 58th gold medal, which means we reach our target. Why? Well, the England women in the 4 by 100 metres running, the squad came second and won silver. But one of the winning Nigerian team has failed a doping test. So, disqualification and we get the gold. And finally, going back just briefly to Wimbledon, Marquesa von Drusen, it was noted her husband wasn't with her right up until the final. And one of the commentators said, oh, you know, why not? Why isn't he here to support you? And she said, well, he has got a job, but more importantly, he has to look after the cat. Get your priorities right. Anyway, apparently her mum stepped in for the final, so Stefan was able to come over and see her almighty win. And that has been your sport. Bye. Thanks again to Sarah for her always interesting sports report. And now it's Dave with this week's postbag. This is postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there. Dorian kicks off postbag this week by putting us in the holiday mood by telling you about Dunwood's Travel Coach Company based in Trinity Street and how visually impaired friendly they are. Here's Doreen. This is our Doreen speaking to Mr Postman Dave again. Um, mentioning about Dunwoody Coaches, um, Sylvia the lady who was speaking um, from the CVS actually she was in the Braille class I understand in the Resource Centre um, she was true with some of the things what she was saying but Doreen here has been with Dunwoody's coaches for 14 years um, they're a very very good company um, I went with a group with the pensioners group um, which uh, I was in but unfortunately I'm not in no more because I lost the lovely fella who I went with but never mind we'll push that behind and get back to Dunwoody um, I will say as for a blind person, partially sighted, physically impaired, or any disabled person, Dunwoody coaches are very, very good with you. When you go with them, whatever holiday you go on, day trip you go on, they're always there with you. And if it's an hotel, they will show you to your destination and make sure you're okay. And if you're not, 
they will give you, the man who's driving their coach will give you his phone number. So if you ever get lost anywhere, wherever you go with them, you've always got the phone number and they'll come to you straight away to direct you. And not only that, the buses themselves are really comfortable to sit on and it's a lovely journey which they give you. Doreen did have an unfortunate experience the last time when she found herself alone on the prom, but the driver came to the rescue. It was then suggested by a family member that she started coming to the resource centre, which she really enjoys. But, undaunted, she's booked up for another Dunwoods holiday. Good for you, Doreen. And back in Coventry, Graham has a comment about how the pre-9.30 bus pass fare has been sneakily put up. Regarding the fare increase on National Express, it's not the fault of the newsreaders, but um, it's been being kept closely guarded secret, I think. But the pre-9.30 pound fare for concession users has gone up from a pound to one pound fifty. Obviously, they didn't want anybody to know about it till you got on the bus. <laughs> but um, that has actually happened on the same day as the uh, other fare increases. Thank you, Graham. I'm sure I had to pay two pounds recently. Julia goes shopping locally near me to Morrison's, where her friend Jen had an embarrassing incident. But in the true tradition of journalism, Julia blabs about it all over the place, well in post bag anyway, a pizza and a hole. It's a bit like a toad in the hole, only it's a pizza. It started in Morrison's when I went shopping with my friend Jen. Morrison's shells were empty. I think my friend John must have just done his shopping because he's a greedy old man. Anyway, as we passed the pizza counter, there was a man making a giant pizza with all the toppings. Cheese, tomato, custard and pickled onions. But guess what? He dropped it all over the floor. My friend Jen said, waste not, want not, and dropped to the floor to lick it all up. But as she bent down, there was a horrible tearing sound. Oh no, said Jen, I can feel a draught. She had only whipped the back side of her pants. No wonder she could feel a draught. There was a big hole in her backside. She had to pull her top down to cover her modesty. Well, I laughed so much I nearly peed myself. I'm very sympathetic. We had to go to Tesco at the Rico to get the rest of my shopping. We got there just before my greedy friend John emptied the shelves there. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. I used to bump into you from time to time in Morrison's with Sheila until she was no longer able to go shopping. Graham kindly decided to spend his days off by helping me with the shopping at Tesco's where he works rather than joining hospital radio. We have a laugh and a joke along the way. As Eva said at the Monday Club to me, we're more like friends. When we were leaving a checkout, I said to the lady, to quote Joey of the American TV series Friends, well, I'm not checking out, I'm checking you out. <laughs>
<laughs> well, it got a laugh. Well, check out this. Inspired by Edwina's tips, we have a top tip from a new postbag contributor. So, welcome to Wendy Pooling, who phoned up the receptionist at the resource centre with a top tip that was duly written down, and her tip is use a nutcracker to open bottles, i.e. water bottles. Thank you, Wendy. That's lovely of you to send in that tip to help your fellow listeners, which I'm sure it will do. Please let's hear from you again soon. And here's another tip from Edwina concerning contrast in plates to help you see round the table. Hi, everybody. It's Edwina. We're just going to talk about food on a plate we have so many different designs of plates but I always bought plates that have got a rim in a different colour for clarity so there'd be this dinner plate in white with a navy blue a deep navy blue half inch edge all the way around that was clarity for you being able to spoon your dinner out and to know the edge of the plate. It all helps at eating time. You can have a dark uh, table mat under the white plate. It's all about the two clarity colours, dark and light. It all helps everything that you do. Putting those two sort of uh, clarity shine to help you through everyday life. Everything. Things in the kitchen you can arrange that you've got them sort of dark against light. I've got a dark tray and I use a white kettle. That's just another example. It's just helping you to identify immediately without trying to find them. It's quite hard sometimes when you can't really see. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. And now here's Graham to reply to Bob Syme who asked you if you could recommend a visually impaired friendly smartphone. Here's Graham again. Yes, Bob. Um, I, I did have a, um, a Galaxy uh, C5 with a synaptic program on it to make it easier for me to use, S-Y-N-A-P-P-T-I-C. But uh, having that I broke the volume control of it, I had to replace it with a uh, Galaxy A. 13 or 13e uh, I sent my old one back to Synaptic so they can transfer the um, my Synaptic account from one phone to the other so that I wouldn't lose my email address and so forth but I only use that phone around the house it's my eyes on the world it's my access to the internet and that's the only reason I use that phone for the only thing I use that phone for when I go out, I use a little old Nokia C5, which has a little bit of internet capability, but not much. But it's an old phone with press buttons, and it fits in my pocket. 
The problem with smartphones is that they don't fit in your pocket, especially in the summer when you've got summer clothes on. Some people like to strap them to the belt, uh, but it's not safe. Um, you're very vulnerable. They're very expensive pieces of equipment, and they can easily be pinched. Um, but I would suggest if you have to go down that road, and there might, might not be any option in the future, <laughs> but I would recommend Synaptic. Um, but what you might need to do, rather than dial the number, is get all your numbers which you might need to use in your address book. Or if you can't do it yourself, get somebody else to do it. And then if you want to ring somebody up with it, all you can do is get into your address book and uh, click on to the person you want to contact. And that's what I would suggest anyway. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, they're a bit of a nuisance, smartphones. I, I, so I, do, I do have some fun with it, but uh, I wouldn't dream of taking it out with me. But I don't know what I'm going to do in the future, because, as I say, I think sometime in the future the only phones you'll be able to get will be smartphones. So I hope that input... Oh, uh, the number which... If you want to ring Synaptic and find out more about it, 0191-909-7909. Thank you, Graham. And if you have a mobile phone you can recommend, please let fellow listeners know in postbag there has been some response from Pete Smith following your comment, Graham, about the problem of people riding electric bicycles in the town centre. The council are particularly concerned about electric bikes ridden by food deliverers. And the council's disability officer, Councillor Christine Thomas, asks you to send her your experiences of near misses with these bikes. I passed on your complaint to Christine, Pete. And uh, I'm waiting to hear from her. Tell us about a holiday organisation you recommend, uh, or a top tip to help with a visual impairment, or anything else you'd like to talk about. Please send them into Postbag, which has been very helpful this week. Thank you very much, and let's hear from you next time. Just give us a ring on 024 press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper, and leave a message or send in a message uh, any way you feel happiest. Thank you for your messages this week. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And now there's Dave with this week's Postbag. Now, after Camden Hall last time, Margaret returns to the city, to Binley, for this week's significant architectural building and the small church of St. Bartholomew's. The parish church at Binley was erected by William Baron Craven of Coombe Abbey for £5,000 and dedicated to St. Bartholomew in 1773. It replaced a medieval church dedicated to St. Swithin. The first sermon was read by his father, Reverend John Craven. 
It was built in the Adams style, possibly by Adams himself, and houses the Craven family chapel. The entrance has Tuscan columns, arched windows and a bell turret with cupola. The ceiling is ornamented with plaster work, including scriptural medallions. The late 18th century east window was created by William Peckett of York. During services, which were well attended when the Cravens attended, the congregation entered through the main door and the Cravens through the north door, screened into their private chapel looking onto the semi-circular apse. Capel Bond, considered one of the most remarkable 18th century composers, died in Coventry on the 14th of February 1790. He was buried at St Bartholomew's. Now there's nothing quite like getting lost in a good book, whether it be in the printed form or an audio recording. And this article, read by Sue, is from Anne Bonnet, who reports on a rural Derbyshire retreat about that not sorry that feeds not only the soul but also the stomach if someone asked me what heaven looks like i would describe a place where i am surrounded by books and have all the time in the world to read them i would curl up somewhere quiet and comfortable and get lost in a story without any distractions or interruptions there would be no to-do list and not a responsibility in sight Crucially, there would also be copious food, refreshments on tap, say, and delicious multiple-course dinners paired with both wine and book chat. So when I find myself on a reading retreat in Derbyshire, and this is playing out in real life, it's no wonder that I spend half the time in utter disbelief. The brains behind this book lover's nirvana is Cressida Downing, a former bookseller and freelance editor, and Sarah Noel, a photographer and cook. Since 2017, the Cambridgeshire-based friends have run reading retreats in picturesque locations across the UK, from the beachfront home in Suffolk to the gorgeous Georgian townhouse where I am staying in Matlock. The idea came when Downing, a mother of teenagers and lifelong book lover needed a few days off. My husband suggested a spa weekend and I thought, no, I want a book weekend, she says. So she went to Gladstone Library, a library with rooms in North Wales, with 13 books in tow. Taking myself off on this reading retreat was lovely and I realised it might be something other people might like to do as well. Much like Downing, my love for books is constantly challenged by the demands of everyday life. There is never enough time and there is always something else calling for my attention, a phone notification or a dishwasher to be stacked. So my reading comes in snatches, most commonly before bed, where it enters into a tug-of-war battle with tired eyes. Meanwhile, unread books that I can't help but acquire continue to pile up around my flat. So coming across Downing and Noel's reading retreats feels like striking literary gold. 
Following a day in the office in London, my experience begins as all those do when you need to be somewhere at a certain time, with a delayed, then cancelled train. One rail replacement bus journey and a lot of stress later, I turn up in Matlock two hours late and at the end of my tether. Stepping inside the wooden beamed house, however, is like entering a gloriously calming bubble. Noelle and Downing welcome me warmly, and I freshen up before a bell rings, signalling dinner. Four other guests and I sit at a mahogany dining table and are served a feast cooked by Noelle. Honey-baked feta with pitta, a hearty tagine with couscous, and espresso martini panna cotta for dessert. As we eat, we discuss what we will be reading over the next three nights and two days. Downing offers reading prescriptions, making recommendations based on your answers to a series of questions. People ask me for all sorts, like books to help them through the grieving process, she says, or they get really specific. I once had someone ask for books about wronged women getting the upper hand. That was a fun one to do. I personally want to read a long book, something that would usually feel too intimidating to fit into my life, so I sink into Barbara Kingsolver's 560-page Demon Copperhead, a modern retelling of Charles Dickens's David Copperfield. Part of me had worried that there might be pressure around how much reading you get done, but Downing and Noel quickly nip this in the bud. We need to remove the word should from our vocabulary, Downing says. No, I should read this or that, or I should get through a certain number of books. Reading is about enjoyment. Noelle adds, on our retreats we do get some people getting through a big stack of books, but equally we've had some people just come and leaf through old magazines they've been meaning to read and others read a few chapters and nap the rest of the time. Ahead of the retreat, I am asked a few times by friends whether I might get bored of just sitting around reading. Aside from the fact that this always sounded rather appealing to me, the answer is no. Time spent in the reading room, the home's lounge, a dedicated quiet space complete with reading lights, is punctuated by walks around the local area, guided by downing, as well as conversations in the kitchen over a cup of tea. Food is a big ingredient. No sooner have you recovered from breakfast, eggs, bacon, avocados, granolas, porridge, than lunch is served, then afternoon tea, then dinner, including one evening where an author joins we have Sarah Ward talking to us about her crime novels. You can also get a tray of snacks at your request. For me, food and cooking for people is an expression of love, says Noel. It is about wanting everything to be taken care of for our readers. This means there is even a strict don't touch the kettle rule, because they will do it for you. We just want to look after people. They get a huge mix of guests, from 19 to 89 year olds, joining for a variety of reasons, but more often than not they arrive overworked, overtired or overwhelmed. 
We provide a bit of a refuge for people who just need a break, says Downing. This is true for me. While I expected to enjoy the reading, I hadn't anticipated how restorative the retreat would be. Noel and Downing provide a mobile phone watching service, keeping an eye on your calls and texts for you, but I go the whole hog and switch my mobile off. I'm a millennial, so this is revolutionary. At first, it makes me feel itchy. Not only because I can't mindlessly scroll through social media and news apps, which by now we know are designed to be addictive. Having my phone turned off also makes me worry. What if there is an emergency, work or otherwise? What if someone needs me? But having forewarned the relevant people in my life and given them Downing and Noel's numbers in case they do need to get hold of me, I slowly start to let go. With no watch, I even become accustomed to my sense of time coming from the church bells that ring outside, which almost sounds too romantic to be true. By the end, I feel more relaxed and rested than I have ever done, including after a two-week holiday. People's shoulders do tend to drop half a foot over the course of a few days, says Downing. You can almost see their jaws unclenching. They often want to hug us on the last morning, adds Noel. In fact, many book their next retreat before they've even left. Around 60% of guests in total are returners. And when it's this nourishing and good for the soul, I know I'm going to be one of them. And maybe one of those treats to feed the stomach could be a very tasty, nicely risen Yorkshire pudding, like the ones that the chefs produce so well in restaurant carveries. Nigel's been investigating and came across this article by Olivia Potts in The Spectator. My mother, a Yorkshire woman, would occasionally take short cuts in the kitchen, but not when it came to a roast, and certainly not when it came to Yorkshire pudding. She even owned a specific Tupperware shaker for the job, like a plastic cocktail shaker in the 1970s, orange colour, with a propeller insert and a lidded pouring spout. The batter would be prepared in this shaker and handed anyone foolish enough to pass through the kitchen, and woe betide anyone who stopped shaking before they are so instructed. I didn't inherit my mother's Yorkshire pudding shaker, but I make do with a vigorous whisk and then a short rest. The batter is an incredibly simple one, made of eggs, flour, milk and sometimes water. Using water or a mixture of water and milk makes for a crisper, lighter pudding. But to my mind, if you're going to call someone something a pudding, at least some of it needs to be a little squidgy in parts, and I love the richness that the milk brings. My Yorkshires are crisp and golden at the edges, but soft and luscious at their base. The first written recipe for a dripping pudding was in 1737, though it is far older. The pudding would sit below the spit roast joint of meat, with the fat dripping onto it. In the mid-1700s, Hannah Glass wrote about it as a Yorkshire pudding, but the Yorkshire connection is probably spurious. Yorkshire puddings are one of those things, little like roast potatoes, that are taken very seriously by those who make them. 
I'm not sure anyone has ever made a Yorkshire pudding without declaring their method of cooking the one true way. But there is something almost all Yorkshire pudding aficionados agree on. The secret to a good rise is to pour the butter into screamingly hot fat. Whether you use vegetable oil or dripping, it should be put into the pan and preheated until smoking, so that the batter sizzles as it hits the hot, hot fat. If the oil is hot and the batter rested, the pudding should rise elegantly as they bake, before subsiding in the very centre to provide a perfect receptacle for gravy. An impressive height is a mark of a good Yorkshire pudding. And in 2008, the Royal Society of Chemists declared that a Yorkshire pudding isn't a Yorkshire pudding if it is less than four inches tall. Quite literally, a tall order. Traditionally, the Yorkshire was served before the roast itself, with just the roasting juices or gravy from the meat. Supposedly, this was to satisfy the appetite cheaply before the main event was served. So gravy has always been a non-negotiable part of pudding experience. If I'm honest, that's why I love Yorkshire puddings so much, because they're really a vehicle for more gravy. There are few things more satisfying than filling a perfectly round pudding with gravy which softens the base and then floods onto the plate when you cut into it. There are strong opinions, of course, what roasts are appropriate for Yorkshire accompaniment. The received wisdom today seems to be that Yorkshires are essential with beef, but an aberration with any other meat. My husband is one of those tedious purists. I say nonsense. First of all, history is against you. The Beef Association is a recent one, with Yorkshires being a roast accompaniment for hundreds of years, and that very first published recipe, the Yorkshire Puds, stipulated cooking them under a roasting mutton joint. And secondly, why deny yourself Yorkshire pudding opportunity? You should have Yorkshire puddings with whatever your heart desires. Just make sure there's plenty of gravy. Mmm, that sounds really tasty, doesn't it? Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the TV personality, Alistair McGowan. He's recently taken on the distinctive voice of Alfred Hitchcock in a new documentary. In this article, read by Sue, impressionist Alistair talks about mimicry, snobbery, and why he abandoned the idea of a career in politics. If anyone could impersonate Alfred Hitchcock, you'd think it would be Alistair McGowan. As you'll know if you watched Spitting Image in the 90s or The Big Impression in the early noughties, the 58-year-old's powers of mimicry are quite uncanny. He can nail anyone from David Beckham to Richard Madeley, Louis Theroux to Dot Cotton. But Hitchcock was not as easy as you might think. When Edinburgh-based filmmaker Mark Cousins recruited McGowan to voice the jowly, lugubrious director for new feature documentary My Name is Alfred Hitchcock, he initially found it a struggle. It was very difficult and the extra ingredient I used was my wife, explains McGowan. Said wife, singer and actress Charlotte Page, is a huge movie fan and knew exactly what Hitchcock sounded like. She had seen the director's cameos in his movies and his appearances on his TV show Alfred Hitchcock Presents and was able to tell her husband when his timbre rang true. 
Listening to the director of Psycho and the birds, the comedian noticed that he sounded a little blocked up. Indigestion, he suspected, must have played a part in the way that Hitchcock spoke. When he met Cousins, the first question he asked the documentary director was, do you know if Hitchcock had any acid reflux? Cousins responded that, yes, he thought he had read somewhere that Hitchcock was indeed on the dyspeptic side. That sort of voice he has, you can hear the breathiness, the bunged-up Qatari quality, McGowan ob observes, slipping into a pitch-perfect Hitchcock imitation as he does so. Hitchcock lived for many years in California, but you could always still hear that slight London accent in his voice. He was the son of an East End grocer, after all. Not that McGowan took his method-style research to extremes. He didn't, for example, try to emulate Hitchcock's diet in order to eat his way into the role. Hitchcock's daughter, Pat, published a biography of her mother, Alma, in which she included many of the recipes Alma used to cook for her husband, among them Yorkshire pudding, beef wellington and almond souffle. I think perhaps if I'd been portraying him on screen, I might have wanted to do that level of research, says McGowan. Often when you're doing voices, you say, who does this person sound like who I already do? Because each voice butts into another somewhere along the line. But actually, Hitchcock was not really like anybody I've done before. That had its benefits. It meant there were no vocal bunkers he would end up falling into. McGowan remembers that when he used to do imitations of Hugh Grant, friends would warn him that he was beginning to sound like Prince Charles. If you're the master of a thousand voices, it's hardly surprising that one might bleed into another occasionally. There was only one slight resemblance McGowan noted with Hitchcock. Once I noticed the London thing, I was very aware of the slight similarity, weirdly, to Michael Caine, as he slips briefly into Caine-style Cockney, before reverting to his deeper, more melancholic Hitchcock tones. Rory Bremner once told me that one of the best things you can do, and he does this a lot, is just to see the face of that person in front of you, he explains of his process. Where does McGowan's genius for impressions come from? Was he born with the gift? He thinks his mother, a primary school teacher, may have helped. She was very, very good at mimicry, and she would mimic all the parents who came into her. She would mimic the other teachers and some of the children. When he was growing up in Worcestershire in the 70s, little Alistair was therefore treated to his very own version of the big impression. I used to love it. Dinner times were just a total joy. My father wasn't brought up in this country. He was brought up in India, in an Anglo-Indian family. I think when he came here, he was fascinated by accents. He couldn't re replicate them at all, but he always noticed the differences in the accents. I think from a young age, I was being pushed towards the analysis and replication of speech patterns. Going to drama school and studying phonetics as part of his English degree at Leeds University gave McGowan's skills an extra polish. As for motivation, there was also 
a certain amount of wish fulfilment in doing impressions. At times he really felt he was becoming Jonathan Ross, Gary Lineker or the others whose cadences he captured so brilliantly. Now that he's in his late fifties, McGowan is less interested in impersonating modern celebrities. I get so appalled, as one does getting older, by the deterioration of proper English that I no longer want to sound like the people I'm hearing on television and radio, which is a terribly snobbish thing to say. Can you be more specific? It's the overall sound of the voice and the way people regularly drop their T's in the middle of words. So we talk about community. We don't talk about community, he explains. They drop G's at the end of words. I just find it so ugly and it leads to miscommunication. He cites one well-known BBC journalist he heard talking on Radio 4 about children during Covid who were told they couldn't go back to school unless they did a test daily. The way it came out though sounded different. I thought, hang on, the kids have got to do an impression of test daily. He admits that it is his own grumpiness, but he does get very annoyed when people don't speak properly. Some newer movies do still hit the mark though, such as The Banshees of Inner Sherin. That is certainly not in standard English, but the rhythm and the beauty of what writer-director Martin McDonough had written captivated me, says McGowan. I loved it, and I just don't hear that often enough now. Certain Hitchcock movies also have a wonderfully romantic and playful use of language. The script are, also, are always so clear. It was a pleasure to be part of this film for that reason. It's been 20 years now since McGowan was at the height of his career. In the spitting image days, no one knew who he was. But for a while, when he had his own series and appeared on chat shows, he began to be recognised. It did get a bit too much at the time, when it was eight million people and they were all shouting out, Do David Beckham, says McGowan. At one point, he considered trying to get into Parliament in order to be able to campaign more effectively for the environment, another of his passions. But then I realised that if I was an MP and I stood up to make my maiden speech, someone would shout out, Do Richard Maidley, do Doc Cotton. So my brief half-minute thought of becoming an MP was curtailed. It's surprising, isn't it, how many TV personalities have had previous careers, be it in politics, medicine, the police or whatever. From one personality to another, Giles Brandreth, he of the very unusual fancy sweaters. He seems to have friends everywhere, and in this article from his diary in The Spectator, he recounts happenings at both the recent and the previous coronations. Once, years ago, making small talk with Elizabeth II, I asked her if it was true that many peers attending her coronation in 1953 had taken sandwiches into Westminster Abbey hidden inside their coronets. Oh yes, she said, they're in the Abbey for something like six hours, you know. The Archbishop of Canterbury even had a flask of brandy tucked inside his cassock. Apparently, His Grace offered Her Majesty a discreet nip, but she declined. 
When I pressed the Queen for any amusing recollections of the great day, she did recall the moment after the crowning when England's Premier Baron, William Stoughton, 22nd Baron Stoughton, 26th Baron Seagrave, and 25th Baron Mowbray, came forward to pay homage. As the noble lord, whose titles date back to 1283, when Edward I was king, retreated backwards from the throne, the poor fellow almost fell over. His robe, which had been used by generations of the family, bunched up around him, with mothballs and pieces of ermine flying all over the place. This could explain why the peers in attendance of the recent coronation were initially instructed not to take out the family coronation robes. At the last minute, they were allowed to dress as they please, but advised to check for mothballs first. Elizabeth II certainly remembered the best quip from the day. She only heard about it afterwards, but it made her laugh out loud. Crowned heads from around the world came to London for the event, and one of them was Queen Salotti of Tonga. She was a magnificent lady, aged 53 in 1953, very tall, 6 foot 3, and splendidly built. She travelled to the Abbey in an open carriage, sitting opposite the comparatively diminutive Sultan of Kalantan. Someone asked Noel Coward, Who's that with Queen Salotti? That, replied the playwright, is her lunch. Coward's quip went around the world, and twenty years later, when Prince Philip was on a visit to Malaysia, he met a group of VIPs at a reception, was much amused when the shortest member of the party introduced himself with a squeal of pride, I'm the lunch! As a rule, Noel Coward is one of my favourite diarists, but his record of 2nd of June 1953 is disappointingly straightforward. Tuesday, Coronation Day, I spent at home watching the proceedings on television, most excellently done, the English State Valley at its best, weather foul and everyone soaked. Much more fun is in the published diaries of Vivian Holland, the son of another great playwright, Oscar Wilde. Holland's son Merlin kindly let me dip, in, dip into his father's journal when I was writing my recent biography of Elizabeth II. Vivian Holland's Australian wife, Thelma Besant, was the Queen's makeup consultant through the 1950s and in charge of the royal face on Coronation Day. Thelma was devoted to Her Majesty, but her husband had royal reservations. A few days before the coronation, he reported in his diary, We took an expensive taxi, 15 shillings, to go to see the show in Parliament Square, Whitehall, etc. It is, of course, all very grand, but the whole thing is too medieval and barbaric for my liking. It is only the fact of having a young queen that makes the thing possible at all. With an old goat like Edward VII, the situation would become absurd. Later, he recorded clearly, chuckling to himself, I have started a rumour that the footmen standing at the back of the coronation coach are really eminent physicians in disguise, just in case the queen is taken queer. Now moving back to more parochial things, the Charter House on London Road has recently gone a major refurbishment. So Dave went along to find out more about this historic building and found a Celtic-style labyrinth which nobody else seemed to know about. Well, it's a big welcome from me, hello, to the 
Charter House that's recently been reopened. 1084 was the beginnings of the Carthusian order because the Carthusian monks lived here. Open this door to experience the sights and sounds of the Carthusian monks' world. Can you hear birds singing and trees whistling? And there's a heron on the wall being projected. So it's this way to the wall paintings. For a while, the Charter House was owned by Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. And there's a big uh, black and white frieze on the wall. All over the wall there's a black and white painting and this Cupid. And there's a horse holding oak leaves which was the uh, symbol of the Dudley family and the horse has got wings and also a kind of uh, serpent or fish's tail. Okay, I'm in a room now, I'm speaking to Heather. Can you tell me about this room and this uh, painting on the wall, please? Yes, yeah, so this one is a medieval wall painting. Unfortunately, we've only got the bottom half of it now, um, but it shows the crucifixion. Um, so you can see like the bleeding feet of Christ and there's like a kind of stab wound through it. And um, there are angels collecting the blood in goblets. Um, and then some of the saints and the Virgin Mary are depicted around the edge. Um, so the, the, it was in the monk's refectory, so the room where they sat and ate together, and they would have looked up at this painting um, as they ate, and they would have kind of thought about it and had that kind of religious experience. Excellent. Now, who's the person with the robe on the right-hand side? He, he looks feminine, but I don't think he is, is he? So it's a saint, um, that one is St. John. Um, John the Baptist. Yeah, watching the crucifixion. Um, And then there would have been St. Anne. Um, We can't see very much of any more over there because this is St. Anne's Priory. Um, Okay, so who was St. Anne? Um, so she was the mother of Mary okay, um, so in, in kind of Catholic um, tradition um, so she had the kind of immaculate conception of Mary who then gave birth to Jesus okay. um, yeah. so, so uh, St. Anne what was uh, Jesus' grandma? yes exactly yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's there you are okay. and who's the soldier there? there's a soldier there with an, uh, with an angel standing very close behind him uh, also uh, dressed in a suit of armour I think it's an angel, it's got wings yeah so we think this is like someone who was involved in the painting trying to add themselves into the picture yes um, yeah. <laughs> as they like to do yeah, a bit um, like selfies yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so they wanted to kind of represent themselves in the picture um, and then the centurion in front is maybe the um, someone who was converted when they saw the crucifixion um, in the Bible. There's a story that says that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you ever so much, Heather. That was lovely. Thank you. And if we go out into the corridor, on the wall above the door is a fragment of the uh, crucifixion wall painting showing the ear of Christ. He sits in the arms of Mary as a baby, and on the right you can see her long hair. 
Okay, I, I'm speaking to the guy Elizabeth at the moment. Can you tell me about uh, uh, Heather, please? She described that medieval wall painting so beautifully. Yeah, Heather um, came with her family um, not long after the, yeah. the place was opened and she's a medievalist and so when we knew that she was finishing her degree we said would you come and volunteer for us and so she's here Wonderful, which is absolutely yeah? fantastic do you think you could tell us something else about the charter house please yes so the, the charter house was founded originally in 1385 although the monks had already yeah. set up shop here and it, but it wasn't until about 1430 that they got all the building finished yeah. And the lovely, fantastic um, crucifixion scene was like the centrepiece of the whole yes, monastery. Yes. And it was where the monks had their food and could contemplate that. Mm. So obviously after the dissolution, yeah. what do you do with the monastic building? Well, first of all, lots of the buildings had everything that was stealable, stolen, yes, the lead yes. from the roofs. And then it was turned over into, and developed into a, into a home. Hence the corridor was being put in, but unfortunately it did mean that the wall painting went in order for the second floor to be yes, done. Yes. And then the bit on the end, the Tudor bit, was just to accommodate staircases. Yes. And then whoever had it then, we're not sure whether it was Dudley or Samson yes. Baker, had the black and white painting done. Yes. And then it, it changed hands many, many times. Mm. It was a market garden for some time. Then yeah. the Inge family had it up until about 1935. And then the Wiley family had it until 1940. It was two houses at one point. Yeah. The wings of the, of the house were demolished and a, a new uh, uh, Victorian bit was built. And then it was divided into two houses. And Colonel Wiley had it till 1940. He was a really good Coventry citizen. He had the house was always open for yes. concerts and what have you. And I would say when he died in 1940, and um, sadly his son had died in the Somme, mm. they gave it to the people of Coventry. Mm. And it's had a lot of purposes, but now the house is telling its own story. Well, I've now come out the back of the Charter House and I'm on the big, huge lawn. And this is where I acted in Twelfth Night, William Shakespeare, and I had a short speaking part where I had to arrest the Duke. Also a non-speaking part where I laughed at an incident as a sailor. And beyond the lawn there is a wall, and then there's remains of the monks' cells, and the gardens they used to tend. And here we have a Celtic labyrinth, or a copy of one, done before uh, a week before the Charter House was opened. And I know it's a Celtic-style labyrinth because there's one outside my mum's church, Anstey Road, United Reformed Church. You walk in the, the entrance, and then you walk in a clockwise direction, and uh, you, until you come to a dead end where you come to a turn and every time you do a turn you would say a short prayer or meditate and you go round and round until eventually you get to the middle of the labyrinth where there should be some flowers although they've seen better days <laughs> and then you make your way out again retracing your steps praying at every turn 
until you exit the labyrinth and then you feel refreshed, relaxed and ready to face the stresses of life. Oh, hello, I'm speaking to a vista called Joe. What do you think of the Charter House and the, and the gardens? I think it's absolutely beautiful. I think what they have done in terms of the restoration and allowing visitors in to come and see this space is fantastic. And the history of it is tremendous. And it's been very interesting to learn more about it. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you. And the Charter House is open Thursday till Sundays. And the entrance is £9, but it lasts you all year. And it's £8 with a GoCV card. And there's no entrance fee to go to Purnell's Cafe and Bistro. Well, I've been around the fascinating charter house and gardens, and now I'm going to have a cup of tea in Purnell's Cafe and Bistro. I hope you've enjoyed coming round the Charter House with me. Okay, bye for now. Dave always seems to find something different, doesn't he? And he brings us just about to the end of this week's Outlook. So from the team and me, Sheila Allen, it's goodbye till next week.